Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name's Sean McShane. I'm an alcoholic. President, chairman of the board, a um, little different than convict, um, <laughs> prisoner number. First, before we go any further, I'd like to take the time to read a, a letter that we received. This letter is from Sue Smith Widows. Greetings to all attending. I am sending my good wishes to all of you. I am also very sorry that I am unable to be there with you tonight. I am sure that it will be a very nice, informative, and interesting memorial to one of the many sites of the Big Book, Big Book's existence. After all, the Big Book fostered many AAs around the world that would even to this day, and I am sure it will continue to do so in the future. As you know, many of the stories in the Big Book came from the Akron area. Cleveland had a tremendous amount of growth, but the roosts came from Akron. I can still see these men, Ernie, Dad, Jim, and Clarence, all sitting around our dining room table, which I still have after 65 years. With an old school pad in front of them, chewing on their pencils. I also had the privilege of helping type many of these stories. Jim, as a reporter, helped edit them. There are so many memories of the early days of AA, I couldn't begin to write all of them. And, of course, some are better not written. Again, I am very sorry I cannot be with you and share, that I cannot be with you to share and absorb from the other speakers. Love and God bless to you all. And hi, brother. Sue Smith Widows. Unfortunately, Nell Wing could not be with us tonight either. Nell is not feeling well, and um, that decision was made yesterday. We were in contact with Nell until yesterday, and at that time she decided that she would not be able to attend. Uh, She wanted to ensure that we sent her love to all of you. She's very much still part of the Alcoholics Anonymous family. Uh, Let's talk about why we're here. I think I'll start with how I got involved in this. I got involved in this, I think, the way most positive things in AA start, on a resentment. <laughs> I, uh, I opened the newspaper and I saw a picture of some guys who were trying to save a building in Newark where the big book was written. They had their names and they had some stuff that I thought was borderline skirting around the traditions, we'll say. And there was one name in there that I recognized I could take a shot at instantly, and that was Pat Real and Fred Real. So I called them up to say, what's going on? This something's wrong here. And uh, they said, you're right. Maybe you should come up to our meeting. I came up to the meeting about six weeks later. When I wasn't there, they voted me as the president of the Works Foundation. As I say that, I would be remiss not to thank my wife who has put up with this. At the same time, starting my own business um, 
and trying to get this whole thing going at the same time. And she has uh, suffered through with my one-and-a-half-year-old and my three-and-a-half-year-old while I was out doing what I love, being with you guys. Um, it's not a burden on me. It's not a hardship. This is what I love. Now, why did I want to get involved in the book, in, the, in where the book was written? First off, all this stuff about Akron. You know, it's Akron this and Akron that. <laughs> what about New Jersey? Um, this is where the book was written. Um, and this journey began, uh, actually, uh, I was in Bob Smith's bedroom at the house in Akron. And... Uh, went down and they had an original manuscript the Clarence had given. And on that, it had the 17 William Street address, Newark, New Jersey, with the original manuscript of the big book. For me, all that I have positive in my life was somehow tied to the events that took place at 17 William Street 60 years ago. As much as all that's positive in my life is somehow tied to the gentleman we have and the Ruth speaking here at the podium tonight. Somehow, all that's good in my life is tied to those people. And I took a ride to uh, William Street with Pat and a couple city workers at Newark, and we worked our way up a broken staircase to the sixth floor where the book was written. And I remembered the magic feeling when I walked into Akron, uh, Bob's house, and someone shook my hand and said, welcome home. And I remember that feeling. And when I walked up that stairs, I had the same feeling. And I knew this was part of my home. Now, only a group of alcoholics would see a building that's probably going to take about four and a half million dollars to fix and come up with, let's put on a show. <laughs> uh, but I believe. I believe. Because I have experienced personal miracles in my life because of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a minor miracle. Uh, from what we took from here financially, we can uh, probably paint the front doorway, um, but it is a start. And more importantly, we want you to know what we're doing. Because out there, I know there's someone who knows how to do this much better than I do. I know that. And I'm expecting him to grab me on his way out of here and tell me that, the next president of the Works Project. <laughs> I'm going to be quiet. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in awe of the turnout. I have to say, pre-registered, a thousand alcoholics. Pre-registered. I want you to think about that. That means they sent it before time. A thousand alcoholics. I'm baffled. No, we had ten tickets. Nine hundred ninety. Nine hundred ninety alcoholics. I'm baffled. And, and Pat and I fought over whether I should get another 500 chairs. Um, 
that's enough for me. I, the, the reason you're here is, is the people that are coming up after me, and I'm just glad you could all attend tonight. Again, we need your support. We need your expertise. And I know there's people here that can give us those things. So I'd like to thank you for coming and enjoy our program. Yeah, Sean brought this up, and I was going to mention a couple of things briefly about you. You. You folks. See, my telephone number's been a number that you all have been calling. And uh, Pat and I are selling one house, buying another house, and uh, getting about 40 phone calls a day from uh, our brother and sister alcoholics who don't seem to understand a few things. Like words like, Sold out. <laughs> it seems there's some understanding in Alcoholics Anonymous that sold out may mean there's three tickets left. <laughs> Just because you want them. Now, I, I don't know, I can't see anybody's red face, but don't worry about it. You're not the only one. There were a lot of you that don't understand sold out. Sold out, this is what it means. I've got a button every chair. So, sold out. The other thing you don't understand is, don't give me that stop sign already. The other thing you don't understand is that for $10, you do not get dinner. You get four area speakers, and you go home. So, and there are a lot of you. I don't care. Anybody's red-faced. There are a lot of you. Don't feel bad. There are a lot of you. You know, you're probably the same people that bought the whole bar when you got paid. Give them everything. Give drink for everybody. But this guy and this woman want $10, they want to get dinner, and they want to know how many people sit at a table. <laughs> alcoholics are that way. There's another thing that alcoholics don't know the meaning of. We've got a little phrase around alcoholics, and I'm just turn it over. Let me tell you how that applies. And there are a lot of you that did this. Some genius person in our group here decided that we would not only print the, the flyer, but on the back side of the flyer we put the directions. Well, there are no alcoholics that know that there's something on the back of the page unless they get the page upside down. So I can prove that to you because Pat was on the phone giving directions to a lady, and she said to her, oh, my God, they're on the back. Now, don't be embarrassed. You were not the only alcoholic that did not turn over the celebration notice. That's about you. And that's my... Resentments for tonight, and <laughs> now we can get on with our speakers. I can't tell you. <laughs> You'll give me another one. Watch it. <laughs> I can't tell you what a privilege and an honor it is to be with men and women such as I spent the last 24 hours. Uh, it is incredible to, to be able to reach out and touch and, and feel and listen to and be with uh, the people that started this whole deal. Uh, it's even more amazing that we have a man here that was in the Oxford group when Bill Wilson came in to the Oxford groups looking for a way to get sober. But we've got him here tonight, and his name is Jim Howe. Jim. I want to see everybody. Well, uh, Fred didn't tell you, but... Uh, uh, you wonder why I knew Bill Wilson. Well, I'm uh, 93 years old, and uh, uh, I was. Uh, uh
I have to tell you that so that you realize that I was in a position to know Bill. And uh, see, I was six years old when the Titanic went down. Uh, because uh, of that, I'm the oldest speaker here tonight. Uh, I've been given a very unique privilege, and that is to introduce a very special guest here tonight. This person, they tell me, has come a great distance, and more than that, this person is 115 years old, 111 years old. It says here, 111. Would would that person please stand? If you can't stand, raise your hand so we can recognize you. Wait a minute. Maybe there's a name here. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, but the person isn't 111 years old. It says they're ill. And uh, uh, they, <laughs> so, <laughs> so they can't come to the meeting tonight. I, I, I'm sorry about that, you see. <laughs> Well, it's one of those things. The other day I was going to, I was on the way to the airport and I had a call on my car phone and uh, it was from my son and he said, where are you? I said, I'm on the beltway. He said, well, we just heard on the radio that there's a car on the beltway going the wrong way and we want you to look out for it. I said, son, I got news for you. There's hundreds of them out here going the wrong way. Uh, So, uh, so that's where I am tonight. Uh, uh, I want you to, I want you to fasten your seatbelts now because I'm going to take you back to a time, in uh, to a point in time, where there was no Oxford group. I mean, no AA meeting. It was all Oxford group. And uh, there was there was a time when uh, when Bill Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, myself, uh, T. Henry Williams, Henrietta Seidling, uh Sam Shoemaker, uh, Roland Hazard, Abby Thatcher, all of those people were all in the Oxford group uh, together. There was no AA program. I was in Texas recently. And I, I, I said this, and the lady on the first row held up her hand, and she says, how about Al-Anon? And I said, no. Uh, 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 there wasn't any Al-Anon either, I, I, I told her. Uh, uh, so, uh, so what I want to do tonight is to, is to, uh, is to, is to take you back uh, to that time. Dr. Bob uh, uh, met the Oxford group, as I understand it, in the spring of, ni of 1933. Bill Wilson met the Oxford group in town hospital on a dry-out period, December the 11th, Friday night, December the 11th, 1934. I met the Oxford group the next night in a YMCA in Frederick, December the 12th. 
1934. So Bill's sobriety date was only one day more than mine. So what was the Oxford group? People will say, we hear a lot about the Oxford group, but what was the Oxford group? Well, the Oxford group was a one-on-one -on -one Christian evangelistic movement within the churches. Eighty percent of the people in the Oxford group were church members. I guess five percent were ministers. And uh, when Bill met the Oxford group, uh, oh, well, that's the reason he was uh, with Sam Schumacher. I mean, he's mentioned with Sam a lot because in the Episcopal Church, the Oxford group was very, very strong. And, of course, Sam being there and, and uh, Calvary uh, Episcopal Church in New York, that was the headquarters for the Oxford group from 1930 uh, to uh, 1938. So uh, that is the reason Sam Schumacher is mentioned so much with Bill in, in, in the early day. Now, Bill, till he met the Oxford group, of course, you would know he was an atheist. Now, I told people that, and they said, we thought he didn't have any religion at all. Uh, <laughs> but Bill had tried everything else, and nothing worked for him. So this, so when he uh, when he tried listening to God, when he gave his life to God, this was the last was the last resort. Well, now uh, you say, well, what was different about the Oxford group? Why was this a revival within the church? We see most people never get beyond the point of their own sobriety in AA. People in church never get beyond the point of their own conversion. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but it means that their experience was not multiplied into the life of another person. Now, you have to understand that the, that the Oxford group was a deeply moral and spiritual uh, uh, movement. And uh, many people in the church didn't like it because it challenged them on their living. It, uh, it was designed to take people into the next step of their, of their Christian life. And uh, uh, keep in mind all the time that, uh, that all the people we're talking about in the early day were not in AA. They were in the Oxford group. And we all operated the same way. Now, uh, Frank Bookman, the leader of the Oxford group, brought three things to the Christian table. And one was the four standards taken from the Sermon on the Mount. They were absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. This is what we all faced in the, in the Oxford group. And then he had what they call two-way prayer where we, uh, uh, in our prayer life, we were, we were taught how to uh, accept the thoughts that we came back into our mind as thoughts coming from God based on these four things and our knowledge of the Bible, uh, the things we knew to be right, our conscience. These were all things of, uh, of setting up these things so that we knew that these things were uh, were definite things, and we wrote them down in, in those days. And the next uh, point was uh, uh, restitution. 
uh, Bill Wilson in, in the eighth, uh, number eight in the, in the uh, 12 step, that's amends. He called it um, uh, amends, putting right what was wrong in your life. And uh, this is what we all did. And uh, uh, so when Bill uh, went into uh, uh, the AA program, 12 steps and all this, he took everything from the Oxford group into the AA program. Now, uh, this was all new to me uh, when I was confronted with this in the YMCA that, that night. And uh, I, my life was 180 degrees out of phase with all of this. Uh, I started drinking when I was five years old. I used to get into my mother's dandelion wine. And I'd fill the bottles up with water then uh, so that she wouldn't know that I drank them. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then the, the first day at school, I took a pint of dandelion wine to school with me in my dinner pail. And uh, I was drinking like Coca-Cola. I didn't know any difference. And, and uh, I liked it. It was sweet. It was sweet. It had a nice taste. And I was very disappointed when they, t when they took it away from me there. Uh, that day, and, uh, but uh, see, when I was when I was 12 years old, 1918, we started in what, what a period was called uh, prohibition, uh, and we had prohibition from uh, from 1918 to 1933, uh, and uh, so, so most of my serious drinking was done during uh, during uh, during that period. Well, we said, how did prohibition come about? Well. The First World War was, was on then. All the men were away to war, and the women got together and voted uh, with the church people, and they voted their liquor out of the country. That's the way it happened. <laughs> That's exactly the way it happened. And uh, you have to understand, uh, it's hard to understand, but, but realize that, that there was no place where you could either drink or buy liquor publicly. Everything was underground. It was illegal. Uh, people, if you wanted to have a party, you went down in the cellar. And a lot of people had padded cellars. Where they, you couldn't hear them. You couldn't hear the noise that was coming out of that. Uh, but uh, you, uh, you have to understand that that's the way, that's the way we were living then. And if you, if you wanted to drink, uh, you had, you had, uh, you had, Two types of you had either rock gut liquor, uh, was, uh, and then or it was homebrew. Homebrew was a beer that we made in, in, in ourselves in, in, the, in, the, in the cellar. Uh, if you put too much yeast in it, you would pop the, uh, the tops off the bottles, and you, at nighttime you'd hear these things coming up against the, 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 <laughs> the kitchen floor. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Against this type of background, I came in, in touch with the Oxford group, and they, uh, they began to talk to me about these four standards and about the thing of listening to God. And uh, I, I just uh, I didn't understand this. And they, they said, well, they were very patient with me. They said, well, it's, it's, it's someone, uh, they told me a story of, a, of the man on the street with a violin case under his arm, and he asked another fellow, he said, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the man said, practice, man, practice. <laughs> so he told me it's a matter of practice. You have to try this. And uh, it was, to me, it was, a, it was a challenge. 
uh, and uh, so I so, so so I tried it, and the first thought that came into my mind really startled me. The first thought that came was something that I had done ten years ago. I had never thought of it once, and humanly, I don't think I ever would have. But that was the first thought that that, that came into my mind. Uh, and not only uh, the, the thought about it, but the thought of putting it right. And the, th the thing was that ten years before that, I had taken a company car Saturday afternoon, picked up a friend, gone to a football game, got drunk on the way, ran into a car, and didn't stop. Uh, I came back, fixed up the little damage I had on my car, and then as an extra precaution, I got the man who owned the garage to say that I didn't have the car out. So the, sure enough, the next week they came to investigate. He said, well, there's a car. He said, not damaged, as you can see. And he said, it's a, furthermore, he didn't have the car out. So they went away, and, and everyone had forgotten about the thing. Now, ten years later, God is telling me to go back and to straighten this, this out. And uh, with, which I did. I went back to the company, and, and they looked up the records, and they said, well, there wasn't any serious. Uh, it showed that there was some action there, but nothing serious. So they said, just forget about it. So I was happy about that. And the, the, and the first thing I began to realize, and I began to get thoughts about dishonesty. I, I realized that, that uh, alcohol uh, was not my uh, real problem that my real problem was dishonesty. And so uh, uh, I worked for a, uh, a power company at that time, and uh, I got paid a salary, but I worked overtime, and I didn't get paid overtime. So I didn't see anything wrong at all about paying my expense account to get that extra money, which I did. And I had a jumper on my electric meter. Uh, and I was second in command of the engineering department. And, uh, uh, see, I knew how to fix these meters. I worked in the meter department. And uh, I don't think there's a meter out there now that I can't beat. Uh, and, uh, and I tell this to people, and they say, will you show us how to do it? <laughs> well, uh, uh, so then it, it was a matter of, uh, of, uh, of going back then. And uh, and uh, and straightening that up. Uh, so uh, uh, this fellow down here has uh, got me uh, on a time schedule, and I have to be careful. I have to be. There's lots of other things I'd like to tell you here tonight. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, uh, I want to be sure to stay to stay within this in this, in this time limit, and. Uh, so I began to uh, I began to to, to realize uh, that uh, there was something in this Oxford group, and I began to see that this went way way uh, beyond uh, a personal salvation. Is that Bookman had uh, Bookman had had an instrument here by which uh, people's lives could be used to bring something new into other people's lives. And uh, I realized that there were, there were many ways in which a person 
could become a good person. But in many cases, the person is good for nothing. Uh, now, I mean by that, uh, how do you merchandise all this goodness that you get? You can practice being good, and be, but how do you do this? But Bookman, uh, Bookman, uh, 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 Bookman had a way, an outlet for us to, to, uh, uh, to take this into the lives uh, uh, of other people. Now, uh, the, uh, uh, I was thinking of, of the, uh, my story... Uh, of my marriage, I, uh, there was a small, small there was a small college in my hometown, a girls' school, and it was Hood College. And uh, I, I met a girl there, and she only knew me the time she was in school. And I talked her into running off and getting married uh, before she went home for the summer. I was only uh, 24 years old, and. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so I wasn't ready for marriage uh, uh, at all. So we weren't married a month before I told her I was sorry I ever saw her. <laughs> I said, uh, and uh, uh, she was uh, she was a p- proud girl. Her family had already in- investigated me, and they had told me they got a bad report back from the town fathers, and. Uh, uh, said I wasn't any good. So they told her that I wasn't any good But before this. So she was too proud to go home and say, you were right. This guy wasn't any good. So she decided to stick it out. So we were, we were, we were four and a half years into armed truth marriage going nowhere but downhill when I met the Oxford group. And then things changed. It took me three days to get straight with her. Uh, days where I'd come home from work starting telling her about myself, being honest with her. Uh, and through dinner, after dinner, until we went to bed, often after we went to bed, we talked three days of that to really get get straight with her. And she knew that it was it was a rough time. And she knew that that uh, she said to me this. She said it's hard for me to take this, but it's better for me to know this uh, now and 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 not have it come up later and spoil our marriage. She said so that we can start building a new home on a sound basis and that's and that's exactly and that's exactly what we did now uh i met bill wilson in uh, uh in, in in 1935 in the ymca and uh, uh francis got key bill uh, bill came to our meetings there he he came to visit people in in, in the area and for a weekend and he heard we were having the meetings he came in and the first thing he said to me, oh, are you going to have any drunks here tonight? And I said, well, I don't know, Bill. But he was absolutely obsessed with, with, taking, uh, with, with uh, taking what uh, he had found uh, in the Oxford group into the AA program. He went to Sam Schumacher, uh, Frank Bookman, in 1937 and thought, said, I think I should give myself to alcoholics. Uh, and, and Frank said, if that's the biggest thing you see for your life, Bill, go and do it. But he said, remember, we're dealing with alcoholic nations. So Bill left to work in, uh, in 1937 uh, and, 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 and taking all of the principles. If you read the big book, it's just like reading Oxford Group material. Bill's idea was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So he took, he took everything in there. 
And uh, so, uh, so that's uh, uh, so. Uh, the big book, I'm afraid, is often like a family Bible. It gets up on a shelf someplace and gathers dust, and it's there as a prestige item. But we really don't read it. You need to go back, and you need to read to read the big book. It's, uh, uh, and that's why we're here tonight is to is to get. Uh, back to the basics that uh, our, our forefathers started. The thing of uh, measuring our life by four standards and listening to God. Now, uh, Bookman always said that you can't build, make a new omelet with bad eggs. And he used to caution us that we said, well, we're just small people. He said, remember that big doors swing on little hinges. And he said, don't fight the problem, live the answer. And uh, I remember we had a cartoon back in those days of a, of a man coming back from a fishing trip. He had fishing poles on his back, and, but no fish. And he said he hadn't caught any fish, but he had influenced a lot of them. <laughs> we, had a, we had a saying in the Oxford group that if you're not winning... Uh, you're sinning. And we were out there to, to, to really get converts into the Oxford group, just like Bill in the early days getting converts into the AAA program. And uh, so uh, the, the work was always based on living out those four standards of honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, and the, and the uh, listening to God. Now, uh, 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 this is more than a life. Uh, 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 about alcohol. Alcohol is only mentioned, remember, in the first of the 12 steps. Everything else is on a moral and spiritual issue of, of life. And uh, uh, they used to tell us that uh, you, can, you can plan a new world on paper, but you have to build it with people, changed people. The people who are willing to let God talk to them about every area of the life are the ones who are going to be uh, used to build a new world. Now, uh, uh, we can't create something new in the world unless we create something new in ourselves. And uh, we can't give away uh, something that we never had. Uh, now, the, the, I think the, the hope of the future lies not in better human inventions, but in better human relationships. Now, uh, this brings us to a a point in our life where we have to evaluate uh, our own life. Now, uh, I would like to to read to you tonight a letter that was, uh, there was a fellow in the Second World War who had the thought from God to write home. He had a premonition that he was going to get killed. And he wrote incessantly inspiring letters. And I want you to read, I want you to read the, uh, the last letter that he wrote home. And it's this. He said, Suppose we as a nation find again the faith our fathers knew. Suppose our homes 
again become the, become the nation's strength. Our schools, the centers of true learning and good citizenship. Our farms and factories, the pattern of unity, integrity, and national service. Suppose our statesmen learn again to listen to the voice of God. Then we shall know once more the, 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 the greatness of a nation whose strength is in the spirit of her people. His name was John Hogan. The day after he wrote this letter, he was killed in action. Now, we in AA have a chance to give our lives in a similar way. Our life of alcohol, we can give up. And, and, and th I'm thinking of a, of a man uh, tonight, his name was Henry Wright. He was one of the early professors of religion at Yale University in New Haven. Uh, he had inscribed on the wall of his classroom these words, and these are the words. The world has yet to see what can be accomplished by, with, for, and through one person totally committed to doing the will of God. And then he would always ask his class this question. And uh, I'm going to ask the question here again tonight. And uh, the question is this. Will you be that person? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Started us off in a very positive way. Our next speaker is a man that uh, I met in Tyler, Texas, a few years back. And uh, I had a guy I used to like to listen to his tapes, and I was being introduced to his wife. And uh, someone came up and introduced Searcy to me. And uh, they said, uh, this is Searcy, he was every sponsor. And... I had to make a decision who I was going to talk to, and unfortunately, uh, Wino Joe's widow won out. And later on, I had to go looking for Searcy uh, to make sure I met this man and shook his hand. And uh, he's just a delight. So we're happy to have him here tonight, 53 years sober. And every year down in Dallas, he has a little deal called the Gathering of Eagles. And if you've got 40 years plus of sobriety, you can show up there on Sunday morning and speak. Last year, I think uh, I had the total. Seriously, told me that the, that particular convention, they had 6,000 years of sobriety. 
So here he is, CRCW. Yeah, with all that applause, I can hardly wait to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> you know, the mind can absorb in, in uh, about as much as the rear end can stand. Let's stand up just a minute and rest our rear end. Just stand up just a second. Come on. Yeah, my name is Cersei, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God and the help of all of you people, Al-Anon and Alateen and Alatots and Alators, and all in between, <laughs> I have not had a or found it necessary to take a drink since May 10th, 1946. And, uh, <laughs> and the only reason I mention the length of my sobriety is because I'm damn proud of it. That's the, that's the only reason I talk about it. <laughs> we're, we're gathered here uh, because we're faced with the fact that we're powerless over alcohol, our lives are unmanageable. But with the help of God, they are manageable. Thank God. So I'm not here because I'm 53 years sober. I'm not here because we had a convention. I'm here because I'm an alcoholic, and I found the way to sobriety and joyous, happy living through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only reason I'm here to... I'm here if it's possible to carry this message to those who still suffer. And if we ever forget where our primary purpose is, we're a lost cause. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help somebody else stay sober, right? And for example, so that's the end. You know, Carl Sandburg said one time, whenever a society or civilization perishes, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. And we're here to celebrate the 60th birthday of the writing of the big book and the publishing of the big book. And like Bob Smith, you know, I'm, I'm so glad we have the big book, and I'm so glad that old Rockefeller... When Bill Wilson needed some money to print the big book with, he turned them down. He said, the only way I can hurt this thing is to give it money. And like Bob often said, we talk about, imagine if Rockefeller had given those hundred first members of Alcoholics Anonymous a million dollars, and had been a hundred thousand dollars each, and we wouldn't have any AA. Well, I, I'm not going to have a drunk along or tell you, you know, <laughs> we had a guy in our group the other night that talked two hours and 45 minutes, and when he got through, he's still in the same bar. 
He went through several wives and, and uh, divorces and divorce counseling and all that. Uh, <coughs> Bob and I had an agreement. Bob Smith and I had an agreement. That we're, so now we're going to try to talk about the solutions of what's the problem. We know what the problem is. Hell, we, we drank too much and did too many things that, in our lives that we didn't like. And that's the problem. But the solution is... It, that I found is through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you people. Yeah, that's where I found it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit though about about myself. You know, I've got I've got some good measurements. These are not my measurements of my body. <laughs> I'm 89 years old. I've been married to the same woman for 65 years, and I've been sober 53 years. I was raised out in West Texas, a sorry damn country. <laughs> and I was raised on a farm, and it was a sorry damn farm, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> there were seven of we children in my family, and uh, I did not inherit alcoholism, I'll tell you that. My father, mother, grandfather, nobody in my family ever had the problem of drinking until I came along. And I had two brothers in Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of them was over 35 years and died. The other one was uh, 28 years, and he died. But the, it did not run in my... I did not inherit alcoholism. I developed alcoholism in the process of because I have an X factor in my life, whatever the hell that is, I don't care. But you add alcohol to it in large doses over a various period of time, and you cross that line into compulsive pathological drinking. And that's the only kind of drinking that's a disease to me. So <laughs> I, I finally got to leave that that farm, and I went. I had an old land up in Stamford, Texas. I'm getting in a bigger town now. It's about 1,500. And... <laughs> And I finished high school there, and I'd played a lot of sandlot baseball. And uh, I had a con contract when I finished high school to go to Midland, Texas, in the oil field. They were developing the oil field in uh, West Texas, and a lot of oil out there, and a lot of money. And they would hire people to play, like guys and myself, play baseball. But we'd, we had to work. We had to have a job. And uh, so I went out there to play with this baseball team. And uh, they, they made me work for a large motor company out there. And I worked on everything in that motor company. They taught me how to do these things, you know. A kid like me off the farm, I didn't know how to do anything except chop cotton or something like that. Uh <laughs> However, back to my father and mother, I learned some things from them that stayed with me, and they were the cause of me eventually recognizing that there is a power greater than I am, and that's God. My dad used to have prayer meeting on Sunday night, and he and my mother would get on their knees and pray. I thought it was kind of silly, but I learned, I heard him pray for our neighbors that I knew damn well he didn't like. 
He prayed for them and hoped that they would straighten their lives out and do something with their lives, you know. But anyhow, in <laughs> uh, this uh, playing baseball, I was a pitcher of a sort. And uh, and we were, this is semi-pro ball now. And uh, our, our baseball manager, you know, I never did like to drink with a sorry drinker. I don't know about you. I'd like to drink with somebody, just drink and drink and drink and puke it up and drink some more. <laughs> These people that say you like my wife, you know, she'll drink a grasshopper. <laughs> Whatever the hell that is, I don't know. <laughs> but she'll sip on it and we'll finish eating and it's still sitting there. It's a damn waste of money, you know. And I like to drink it, drink it down. Get <laughs> We had a guy named Red Hill that was our third baseman, and Red was a sorry drinker. He would drink two or three drinks and just pass out. He couldn't handle alcohol at all. Nothing like me. Nothing. Like me. Well, our baseball manager was Doc Ellis, and Doc had a funeral parlor. And every Sunday night after the baseball game, we'd go to the funeral parlor and, and drink home brew in that city. And uh, like all drunks do, you know. And uh, this night at the funeral parlor, old Red had about two or three beers. We drank home brew then. And I know most of you don't know what home brew is, but it's some kind of uh, macaroni and cheese or something. It's fermented and it'll make you drunk. <laughs> Red had a couple of bottles of beer and passed out. And we were disgusted, we who could handle alcohol <laughs> with, with Red. And so after a while, we decided we'd teach him a lesson. And we picked him up and put him in a casket. <laughs> and we folded his arms and put all the flowers on him and everything. <laughs> And we stood back to listen what his reaction would be. What, and then we heard Red say, he reached and, and felt himself and looked up and all around. He said, well, if I'm not dead, why am I here? And if I am dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? You can imagine Red later on came in the program. <laughs> well, we we played baseball. We didn't have big stadiums like you did, like the Giant Stadium and all those. And we, no, we played out. That was a ranch country, and we played out in the cow pasture. And if you knocked a home run, you'd have to hit it a mile to go over one of those fences, you know, out there. But uh, in that cow pasture... What ended my career one time, I slid into what I thought was third base. <laughs> and I quit playing baseball. <laughs> they gave me a job with this motor company, and, and uh, I did well with it. And they promoted me to manager and general manager. We had everything from Abilene, Texas to El Paso, about 600 miles, distributors for Dodge trucks. And in those days, you don't know what you, I see your smog here, but you don't know, that doesn't compare to the sandstorms in West Texas. 
those clouds of dirt and dust would come into West Texas and it would tear up a motor on an automobile. So Chrysler put an oil filter on. He smarted them out. And we sold the hell out of those, uh, those oil companies, big oil companies, pipeline companies, bought them. And uh, so I had a good job and a lot of money, and, and, and I had to do a lot of entertaining. You can understand that, you know. <laughs> and I entertained and entertained and day and night and day and night. I'm, I'm talking about the road to alcoholism now. And you keep following that pattern, and if you have that whatever that is in there, and going somewhere down the line, your drinking pattern changes. Something happens. What the hell is the difference? I used to, I could drink and, and go to work, no, no problem, no hangover, no, no nothing. And now, it's hard. It's different. What's happened? And so, I'm on the road to... Compulsive pathological drinking. And you keep that pace up and you keep it up. If you do, then you, you really get into it. And I got on those four horses. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I rode them out. I stayed with that. Well, here, you know, after so long, <laughs> you uh, these your luck changes, for one thing. Do you ever notice how your luck changes when you get to where you can? <laughs> I started working for a narrow-minded employer. <laughs> and then I decided I'd take the geographical cure. So I went from Midland to Corpus Christi, Texas, as credit manager of the Packard Automobile Company. It's a sorry damn car, but they were cutting me off. Didn't it? <clears throat> and I took the geographical cure. That's unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. <laughs> and I got to Corpus Christi, and my drinking got worse. And uh, make a long story short, uh, I uh, I got in trouble with my boss. I take that old Packard and go out on the King Ranch. It was 360,000 acres out there. I go out there loaded with whiskey and just drink, stay out there four or five days. I was on a very strict diet, as most alcoholics were, cheese and crackers and booze, you know. That's all I had. Well, anyhow, I, I found out that the Packard people were very narrow-minded, and they fired me. And I, I, got fired. I tried to get other jobs. Here's what happens. You keep going down, and you're bewildered. You don't know what the hell's happened. But the further you go, the worse it gets, and then you get into that terrible situation where you don't know, you can't get out, you can't get in, you don't know what to do. And I hired out to the wrong kind of person. I finally hired out to a guy that had some pickle trucks. They served as hamburger joints. And you say, take a CEO like me driving a damn pickle truck? <laughs> a, <laughs> a big shot like me driving, oh my God. So I got out of, out, of, out of the city to drive this truck, and on the way to Mexico, we stopped at the hamburger joint, and they were closed. We went on to Mexico, another drunk with me, and I traded that load of uh, pickled and onions for boots and came back, and, you know, I, I, I found out the police were narrow-minded. They put me in jail. 
<clears throat> my brother bailed me out, and I went to Dallas. And uh, I went to work at a defense plant out in Dallas. And we alcoholics are pretty sharp, you know. But we know phonies when we see them. And they put me studying time out there, what these people were doing with their time. And I discovered in my very uh, uh, way of looking into their time that a lot of them were, we were going to lose the world, World War II, if we didn't get something done. So I volunteered to go in the service. And boy, that's a mistake. When you're 33 years old, you've been sober by 20 years, and been drunk 20 years, and, and you're out of gas, and, and you're out there trying to do basic training, believe me, you better watch out. You, <laughs> I wound out in some terrible places at terrible times. <laughs> I went in the service, and they sent me to Cheyenne, Wyoming, <laughs> the most terrible place in the world. <laughs> and uh, I stayed there. 11 months, and I didn't do any drinking in basic training because I couldn't breathe. And when, when I got out of there, I went back to Dallas, Texas, and immediately they hired me for five to handle to five states with an electric autolite company out of Toledo. And they moved me to Lubbock, Texas. And I went out there. They knew I had a drinking problem, but they didn't know how bad it was, really. Anyhow... On a day there, and we were, I was traveling with my salesman, the distributor salesman, and we were in a little town, Odessa, Texas, out there. And, and I had to have a drink. I was about to die. And I told this guy, this car broke, and I said, I'm going to the hotel while you're having the car fixed. And on the way, the re, you see, an alcoholic smart. I knew there was a liquor store between there and downtown. So I went and got me a pint of whiskey. And I ran into an old drinking buddy of mine, Bob Skimmerhorn, who uh, I had done a lot of drinking. And he was a sorry drinker, too, but he had a lot of money. And <laughs> and I ran short. I know none of you ever did, but I ran short of money a time, few times, now and then. Well, I'd steal his money, and he'd stay, he'd pass out, and I'd steal his money, and I'd just stay drunk. He kept me drunk about ten years. Uh, <laughs> but I ran into Bob, and I hadn't seen him in some time, and, he, and I said, let's go have a drink. I'm about to die. And he said, I'll go with you. We went up to the room, and, and we talked a little. And he said, I'm not drinking today, but you need a drink. Going, you're, you're, you're in bad shape. Go on and drink. Have you a few drinks. And, and I asked him what kind of venereal disease he had. You know, it, it must be something. I'd never seen him turn a drink down, never. Well, anyway, he said, here's what happened. I'd get up and drive at night and, 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 and drink. And in front of the airport, where the old airport is now, he said, I ran into a car load of ladies and three of them were killed. And you can imagine the anguish my mother and the problems we've had and, and the anguish of having killed somebody drunk, it, it was the most terrible thing you ever heard of. And he said, I found a bunch of guys there in Dallas, and, and we meet and, and together, and I found a way not to drink. And I've been sober ten months. And I said, my God, that's impossible. No way he could stay sober ten months. 
But anyhow, he, he said, I'll send you this book. I want you to read it. It's a big book. And, and, and uh, wherever you'll be next week. No, he said, I'll send it to your home. I said, don't send it there. My wife think I had a drinking problem. <laughs> and he sent it to Amarillo, Texas, in the hotel. And I, I was drunk, drunk, drunk. And you know, I had that big book, and I thumbed through it 500 times. Never did read it, but I stayed drunk. Isn't that amazing? I never did read it. I didn't know what was in it. But I took it home and hid it to my wife, I thought, and she read it and put it back. And, and waited. She said, that sounds good, but he'll never do that. Well, anyhow, Bob told me on that occasion, when you go as far as you can go, you can't go another step, you call me. Come to see me. I'll try to help you. You need some help. And so I, uh, I lost that job in November. Another narrow-minded employer. And, uh, and, and the, and I, I stayed drunk every day from the latter part of November 45 till April 46. And the, that, that moan of clarity came. When that sunlight of the Spirit, something shined, something happened. And it said, you better go look up Bob. You've gone as far as you can go. And I got on the plane, went to Dallas, and, and, and uh, Bob was out of the city, so I got some more drunks. And we got drunk and stayed drunk until Saturday, and he came and took me in an ambulance out to a, a drying out joint. We didn't have recovery centers like we do now. But I was there, and they in that, uh, uh, and they would give us a, an ounce of whiskey every uh, every four hours. And I'd been drinking a pint every four hours, so you can imagine how much good that was doing. This old Irishman in there said. Listen, Searcy, if you will, in the morning, turn that drink down, and that'll be today. And if you'll turn that, and if you don't ever take a drink today, you'll never take another drink. Well, I said, well, I'll be damned now, you tell me. <laughs> I turned that drink down, and for some unknown reason, I didn't need a drink. For some, I don't know why, I'd always had to have a drink. But they took me to AA, and we went down downtown Dallas to 9, 12 and a half Man Park in front of a liquor store. And then I knew AA had worked. You know, when they told me to take me to AA and park in front of the liquor store, that would work. That would be all right. Well, we went upstairs, and there were ten guys in there, all happy, joyous, and free. And they were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And here is... Here is where God intervenes and helps sometimes. There was only one guy in all those ten that could have done what he did and show me a way that I did not have to drink on a daily basis. He took me to the twelve steps. There were no twelve traditions then. He took me to the steps and said, Do you believe in God? I said, Yes, I believe in He said, I want you to commit in the morning before you get up that you not I don't want your promises, your proposition. A commitment to God that you will not take a drink just for 24 hours. And he gave me the solution, and there were only four members of Alcoholics Anonymous between Fort Worth, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona, 1,500 miles, not a group. And uh, there were only four members. 
Well, finally, we, we developed some groups and by going back and forth to Dallas. And that, uh, AA had just begun in that country. And uh, so we had groups. They mushroomed. And, and all of a sudden, we had a lot of groups, and, uh, and the thing was working, and AA was working good. And Bill Wilson would come to Texas and uh, and help us down there form, get some groups to where it, it's a lonely thing when you don't have a group except people. That's the reason I need you people. So as we went along, you know, we, we, we formed clubs. We are the cause in the Southwest of having the 12 traditions because we start, had clubs, and they called them AA clubs. And it's not, you know, old Mary ran off of the money. And old, old John trying to run the club. No, and we kept Bill Wilson awake all night, you know. They were calling New York and saying, find what the hell we're going to do with John and Mary? And uh, so Bill would come to Texas. And then in 1948, uh, Bill came to Amarillo, Texas. We had about 25 people gathered in Lubbock, Texas. They came to Amarillo, and we got in the plane, and went. And he pulled out some notes. And, and, he, and he, he said, I want you to read these and see what you think about them. And then I, I read them over carefully, and I said, Bill, this is all right for you Yankees, all right? <laughs> but we don't need it down here. We love each other. Oh, how we love each other. <laughs> what it was was the 12 traditions. Aren't you glad I didn't start this thing? Well, anyhow, Bill was there. Many times, many trips, Bill came to visit with us and, uh, and showed us how to, to solve these situations and what to do about them. And uh, so, anyhow, Bill sent me off to Yale School on alcohol studies after I raised hell with him so long and asked him so many questions. And I went there and got all this knowledge and came home, you know, and I was going to save everybody. And uh, so after a while, after a couple of years, Dr. Jelinek hired me, and they brought the Yale School on Alcohol Studies to Fort Worth, TCU. And then after a while, they hired another guy and myself to do educational work to uh, establish uh, uh, local committees for education on alcoholism and so forth. And uh, in, in, in about, to make a long story short, I think we spread the disease pretty good. Uh, <laughs> After a while, then, Dr. Jelinek became ill. Dr. Jelinek was a scientist, and he came from South America to, to head the Yale School at New Haven. And uh, we were riding along one day, and I asked, I said, Bunky, you're a banana scientist, and then you go to alcohol. How in the hell do you go from bananas to alcohol? He said, they're just alike. They get away from the bunch and get peeled. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow... Uh, there came a time Dr. Jelinek became ill, and, uh, and he said, the greatest need we have is some hospitals where an alcoholic can go into and sober up and go into AA and stay sober. And so we started some hospitals. And a long story short, because I don't have very much time, a long story short, Bill came to visit this clinic we had in Dallas one time, and, and in 1953, and I said, Bill, what would you rather really see happen now in AA that's never happened? 
He said, I'd rather see Abby have a chance to get sober. Abby went to Bill. Bill was in the hospital, Towns Hospital, you know, for the 40th time. And he was in the Oxford group. And Bill said, well, what's this religion you got? He said, well, it's not religion, it's spirituality. Well, what do you do? What's the bottom line? He said, we trust God, clean house, and help others. And we haven't been able to improve on that since then. You know, it's still that way. So, anyhow, we got Abby down, sobered him up, and Abby stayed sober off and on three or four years at a time. But to make things straight, he finally died up in upper state New York here. Uh, and he was sober two and a half years when he died. But he had periods of sobriety, three and a half, four years. He, he nursed, a, 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 and he was crazy about women like I am. And, and he fell in love with this RN, a nurse, and he nursed her for two and a half, three years. She was hopeless and helpless. For, and then he got drunk when she died. So we, we've learned a lesson in these things. How, you know, I see the threads of spirituality woven through all of the program of the fabric of AA. It's all through there, from the beginning, from everything that happened, like for the things we got from the Oxford group and so forth. It all reverts back to the power greater than we are. And these 12 steps of recovery and alcoholics anonymous were not written by somebody that sat down and wrote out 12 steps. They did those things, and as a result, they stayed sober. How do we know why it worked? It worked because it worked from the beginning. Why? Because it's what they did. And those who, who did those things and experienced those steps stayed sober. And those who didn't, didn't. And that's true today. So, uh, I wish I had two or three days to go. <laughs> we might have made a lot of mistakes in alcoholic A lot of mistakes. And uh, and we did things wrong in a lot of cases, most cases. But here here are the things we talked about: the things to do to stay sober. I'm going to tell you about how not to stay sober and how we didn't stay sober in the beginning. And these are the twelve steps prior to the AA program. We admitted we were powerless over nothing that we could manage our lives and perfectly and those of anyone else who would allow us to. We came to believe there was no power greater than ourselves, and the rest of the world was insane. We made a decision to have our loved one, friend, friends turn their will and lives over to our care, even though they couldn't understand us at all. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of everyone we knew. We admitted to the whole world at large the exact nature of everybody else's wrongs. We were entirely ready to make others straighten up and ship out. We demanded others to either shape up or ship out. We made a list of all persons who had harmed us and became willing to get even with all of them. <laughs> we got direct revenge on such people wherever possible, ex except when to do so would cost our lives and the very least the jail center. We continued to take the inventory of others, and when they were wrong, promptly and repeatedly reminded them of it. 
We sought through bitching and nagging to improve our relations with others, and we couldn't understand them at all, asking only that they knuckle down under us. <laughs> Having had a complete physical, emotional, and spiritual breakdown as a result of these steps, <laughs> we tried to blame it on others and to get sympathy and pity in all our affairs. <laughs> But, but, uh, yeah, I know it. <laughs> but I've got to read that. We had early promises, too. And he, uh, uh, Fred almost stole my thunder out of my book. Yeah, here are the early promises. You'll know your full name and address. You'll be able to shave yourself. You'll be able to dress and undress yourself at the appropriate time and places. You will at all times know the city, state, and country you're in. You will probably, we will, you will routinely be able to find matching socks. You'll be able to smoke if you wish without burning the holes or in the clothes or furniture. You'll lose the fear of food. You will spend less time in the bathroom. You'll be able to walk a straight line past the balloon test. You'll lose the fear of police cars in your rearview mirror. You'll be able to answer the doorbell without looking through the keyhole first. You'll realize what a mess you've been and thank God for AA and Al Anon. All that, those are the problems now, the rewards. These are the real rewards. And you can put your zero up then. <laughs> These are the real rewards. Faith instead of despair, courage instead of fear, hope instead of desperation, peace of mind instead of confusion, real friendships instead of loneliness, self-respect instead of self-contempt, self-confidence instead of helplessness, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. A clean pattern of living instead of a purposeless existence. The love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. The freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. So I'm going to take a little more time, about a minute. Uh... I know I spoke over in England their 50th anniversary over there in 1997, and they talked 20 minutes over there, and that's the maximum. Nobody ever talked over, even the, no matter who you are, you know. And uh, so I barely got to introduce myself over there. <laughs> but uh, There is no doubt in my mind that, and this is experience, strength, and hope, that the answer to all of our problems as an alcoholic, the solution is to experience the 12 steps of alcoholic knowledge. I don't mean read them and know them and talk about them, just experience like our founders did. Experience those things. And as a result, they stayed sober. So, 
Old Bill told me one time, I said, why are we talking about Abby? And he said, uh, and Abby asked me to be his sponsor before he died several times. He was sober two and a half years before he died. And we talk about those things and how nobody is hopeless and helpless in this fellowship. There is not anyone, anywhere, anytime that cannot be helped by someone. And each and every one of you out there are the only one who can help somebody that's looking for a way out. You're the only one who can do it. Nobody else. You can't. Each one of you. There's somebody you can help. So, there, I'm going to, uh, don't leave, I'm not going to sing this song. <laughs> but back to Stanford, Texas, there was a guy named Stuart Hamlin that wrote a lot of songs. And he went to Hollywood and wrote a lot of religious songs for those religious movies. And he came into Alcoholics Anonymous about three years before he died and asked me to be his sponsor. And, and I told him, I thought he wrote, you've, you've heard his old song, some of this old house and things like that. And he wrote this, it is no secret what God can do. And these are the words, I'm not going to sing it, don't leave. <laughs> the words go something like, the chimes of time ring out the news another day is through. Someone slipped and fell, was that someone you? You may have longed for added strength, your courage to renew. Do not be disheartened, because I've got news for you. It is no secret what God can do. There is no night, for in His lights you'll never walk alone. You'll always feel at home wherever you may roam. There is no power can conquer you while God is on your side. Just take Him at His promise. Don't run away and hide. It is no secret what God can do. If you're not as close to God as you once were, make no mistake about who moved. And if you never were close to God, make no mistake about who should move. So I challenge each and every one of you, all of us together, that, that we re come to the realization that we have the greatest way to rid ourselves of the rubbish and trash in our lives that we don't want in there and remove the need to have alcohol in our lives. We have that program. That's the solution. And, and, and let's hold on to it. Let's keep it. Let's keep it. So I challenge each one of you, let's abandon ourselves to God as we understand God, clear away the records of the past, admit our faults to our fellows, and I have no doubt in my mind, that whoever you are, wherever you came from, wherever you've been sober, or anything about it, that all of us someday, somehow, somewhere, will meet again. Until then, God bless all of you, and I love you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.